This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. This is Humans on Rights, a podcast advocating for the education of human rights. Here's your host, Stuart Murray. One of the great things having a podcast, particularly the podcast that deals with humans on rights, is you get a chance to talk to some pretty impressive people. Today's no exception. It's interesting that uh, my guest is Yvonne Peters, who I'm going to introduce, but I asked Yvonne if she would come on and recognize an international day that happens on January the 4th. It is World Braille Day, and it's an international day to celebrate the awareness of the importance of Braille as a means of communication and the full realization of the human rights for blind and visually impaired people. So let's let's kind of put that into context. So that was the reason that I approached Yvonne, if she would come on to this podcast, which she agreed to do, and I'm thrilled and delighted. But now, the listener, you're going to have to bear with me because this introduction really speaks to the incredible person that Yvonne is. I, I couldn't find really the world Braille anywhere in, in what it is that she is so incredible about, other than you should know that Yvonne Peters is visually impaired. But let me just give you a bit of a background on who Yvonne Peters is. She's practiced as a human rights lawyer for over 30 years, focusing on disability rights and women's rights. She was a legislative consultant on the implementation of regulated midwifery in Manitoba and became the project manager for the development of a freestanding birth center, the first of its kind in Western Canada. She was the chairperson of the Manitoba Human Rights Commission. And in 1980, Yvonne chaired the Human Rights Committee of the Council of Canadians with Disabilities. And the key goal of this committee was to secure recognition for disability rights in the then-proposed Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So, success. In 1981, Canada became one of the few countries to grant constitutional protection to the rights of persons with physical and mental disabilities. Now, I know I've met Yvonne on numerous occasions, and I was delighted in 2021 when she joined the Inclusive Design Advisory Committee with the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. And just a couple of weeks ago, I was more thrilled to meet Yvonne in the Stuart Clark Garden of Contemplation at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights when they announced that she was now a board trustee of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. Yvonne, as I said, is visually impaired and she travels with a guide dog and has encountered discrimination because of her dog. We're certainly going to talk about that. She's learning to play the flute. I'm not sure if she's going to play on this program, but she's learning to play the flute. She's involved with horse racing activities, and she has now stepped away from legal practice, but she's involved in a big way in the community. She loves relaxing with her dog Idris and her husband Howard at their cabin in Manitoba. Yvonne, I hard, hardly touched on all of the amazing things that you have done, but let me just start off by saying welcome to Humans on Rights. Oh, Stuart, thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for that very kind introduction. Well, you know, Yvonne, I think the great part about you is that you you love a good conversation, and uh, mm -hmm. that's what we're going to have. But let's good. get let's let the listeners know a little bit about. So, you know, yes, you practiced thirty years as a human rights lawyer in Winnipeg. Tell us about your beginning. Where where were you born? Where did you go to school? How did you get your education? Oh boy, those are uh, those are interesting questions. Well, I am the oldest of five children. Um, I was born in Saskatoon, and uh, I'm the only blind person in my family, immediate and extended. My blindness was caused by a genetic, very rare kind of genetic issue. So, uh, as I said, I grew up, grew up the oldest of five kids. Now, when I was five years old, I, I lived in a housing complex with lots of kids. So I had lots of buddies. And when they were getting ready to go to school down the street, I suddenly learned that I would not be going with them. Mm. So in fact, what happened is 
I had to go because the community schools in those days, neighborhood schools, did not accept blind children. So I left Saskatoon in September and I went off at the age of six to the Ontario School for the Blind. I believe it's now called Ross McDonald School for the Blind, located in Brantford, Ontario, which is from a child's point of view, two long days and two long nights on a train. Wow. So yeah. that, that was uh, surprising to me that I found myself not able to attend school. So I went to a residential school for 11 years of my life. So let me just stop you there for one second, Yvonne. So just go back to, you mentioned that you were the oldest of five mm-hmm. children. That's right. And you're the only one that is a blind child. Well, you're blind. Yes. You're the only person that was blind in your family, if I could say it that way. That's correct. Um, and, yes. and okay, so and you said it was a genetic caused by genetic disease. What, what was that, please? Yeah. So what I was diagnosed with at that time was infantile acute infantile glaucoma, which is different than the glaucoma that people might uh, have when they're older. This is caused by two recessive genes. So each parent has to have this gene. It's quite a rare gene. So in fact, Stuart, I was quite historical because yeah. uh, the, the the possibility of this happening was quite rare. My parents are both from Mennonite background. And so who knows? Maybe way back when there was a connection. We're not sure. But yeah, yeah, that's my little historical background. And and then the other four children, you know, were born without that uh, acute. Yeah. What what do you call it? Acute? Acute acute infantile glaucoma. Acute infantile glaucoma. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, okay. So that's a fascination, right? Is that you're growing up as with these kids and I mean, you're, they're all buddies and they're friends. And then as they get excited for the first day of school, you yeah. go, you go East young woman. Yes. Yes. Uh, and so, it, and was that, what was it like when you arrived there, Yvonne, when you first day that you arrived or the first week, I mean, just <laughs> what was that experience like? Well, Stuart, I, I know we, we were going to talk about Braille. And so I won't dwell on residential school, but we all know what residential school is like. It has its very significant problems. So being away from your family for 10 months of the year for a good chunk of your childhood is not a good thing. Right. Um, So I'll leave it at that. Um, It was lonely. It was difficult. And it alienates you from your family and you have to work hard to get back to, you know, finding a place within your family. But let me go to your subject matter, because that is a, a, a more happier point, And that is, that is where I learned Braille. Braille was the norm. And so, you know, there's always a little good with the bad, right? Right. And so that's, that's where I, I learned uh, Braille. And, and I'm grateful for that aspect of it. Yes. So, so Yvonne, again, and I, you know, just, you know, just to be candid with the conversation. Yeah. So you, you used it twice in this conversation already, residential school. So mm-hmm. I'm just sort of trying to sort of process this as I'm asking the question. Sure. That I never, ever, you know, took that to be a part of your background that you would have mm-hmm. experienced what has Canada is sort of awakening up to more and more is the issue around residential schools. So Mm -hmm. would would you have then been involved with other first nations children? So the school was primary was, was for, for blind children, but yes, we had indigenous children attend. And, you know, I, I, don't think I got a very good experience other than some of the highlights that I, I can mention. But, you know, I had a, a difficult time at residential school. But let me tell you, the Indigenous blind children had it much worse. And their cultural norms around hair and religion and mm-hmm. various other family, uh, you know, contacts and so on were, were very much, in my opinion, this yeah. is my opinion, I, I, I think they were treated very, very poorly. So. You know, there's stories in every corner. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And, and I, you know, again, I, I appreciate the openness on this, Yvonne, and, and and in the process of conversation to sort of discover these things. So thank you for sharing that. Sure. You know, I don't mean to sort of do a quick pivot away because, I mean, that's a, no, you no. Know, that, that's a horrific part of, of Canadian history that we're still trying to come to terms with. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure how long that will be, you know, the notion that, and again, it's this is an off topic, but I mean, it is part of your life and the fact that 
that uh, it is becoming more and more clear, I think, to all Canadians that uh, that this was a genocide. People will say, well, maybe it was cultural. Put whatever mm-hmm. word you want in front of it. It was a genocide. And I think that that's where we as a nation have to start to understand what it is we were part of. And and I think that it's happening, Yvonne, and it's not what our conversation <laughs> is today. I think it, we need to do a whole lot more. And, yes. uh, but, you know, I have to be a part of that as, as well. So I don't, uh, right. I don't want to stand on any principle here. It's, it's about learning. So yes. let me come back then, Yvonne. So, so one of the things about Braille, like, did you, were you aware of Braille before you arrived as a blind child at the school in Brantford? Was that something you'd heard about and you were wondering about yes. it? Or, so how did, yes, that, I, how did that come around? I knew a tiny, tiny little bit about Braille. I lost all of my vision pretty well. I had a little bit of vision till I was five, but it wasn't much, but a little bit. So, you know, for me, being blind is pretty normal. And so, well, as a young child, they did um, send a very nice man from the CNIB to um, come and meet with me. And he showed me the alphabet and, you know, a little bit about Braille. So, you know, did I know much? No. But I knew Braille existed and, right. you know, it just seemed like a natural to me to read with your fingers. So, yeah, it had, I had a little tiny exposure. And and one of the things that, you know, fascinates me, and I've tried to do a bit of research on this, Yvonne, and please help me with this, is when you look at some people who are sighted, how they learn to read. You know, there's a slower introduction of words and sentence structure and what that whole process goes. What is that like for somebody who is learning to read Braille, because I, if I understand correctly, Braille is what, six? Six? Well, you describe yes. what Braille is. You know better yeah. than I do. So, uh, so Braille is, if you think of it, we call it a Braille cell. Yeah. Three dots going down on the right, three dots going down on the left. And you take those dots and you can configure them. Thank you, Louis Braille, very much for his genius approach to figuring out how to do this. And you can you can form a number of different characters, if you will. I think there's 63 or 64 different characters that you can make with these six dots. And then by combining these characters different ways, you get all kinds of words. And there's a lot of short form that goes on in Braille. <clears throat> we call it contracted Braille. Yeah. So you begin, back to your first initial question. So just like kids, when they go to school and they start to learn printing and how to recognize letters and words. It's the same thing for blind children, as I recall, way, way back then is, you know, you start by learning the alphabet and then you learn. And and so I remember the uh, teacher handing out, she called them word cards. And uh, you could, you know, the letters, there'd be certain letters and she, you know, what are these letters? And you'd have to figure out what they were. That progressed then, of course, to to actual words, three-letter words, and they get longer and longer, and we'd be so excited when we could figure out the long words. And so, you know, I think it's it's just like uh, what happens with kids in in uh, you know community schools. And you know, I think it took about somebody might correct me on this, but it's a long time ago. You know, up to grade four to really be a good braille writer, because first you learn every letter in the what we call longhand braille. It's called grade one braille, meaning not the school grade, but just that level of grade where level of braille where you write every word out. Right. Gradually over time you learn all the different contractions. It's like shorthand, if you okay. will. Different different letters, you know, like for example, if you put the letters F and R together, that will stand for friend. Okay. Then you take a dot, and say you take a dot five, and you put that in front of an F, you will have father, and a dot M, five M is mother, and so on. So there's, and then a lot of the various um, combinations of letters, A-T-I-O-N, uh, S-I-O-N, T-I-O-N, all of those get shortened down to two little characters. So you have to learn all of the contractions and how they fit together. So, you know, it. It probably takes a good three, three to four, five years to be good at it. And I expect that's the same for kids. You know, they start learning to really read mm-hmm. well in grade five. Yeah, so that that was, it, you know, everybody was learning it where I was. So this seemed like a very normal kind of thing to do. 
And, and Yvonne, let me just ask. So the 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 question becomes: You're you now learn to you know read, if you will, by by using the touch of your fingers on these six points that Louis Braille mm-hmm. has, as you say, ingeniously put together. Mm-hmm. What is the process then of learning how to how to print or to you know put together? You know, you get to a point where right. you're, you're you're writing something. How do you do the writing? Well, that's that's a very interesting question as well. And and to some degree, things haven't evolved much, although there is technology, which you know I, I'll touch on in a minute. But you know, if you want to talk about you know picking up your pen or pencil, mm-hmm. what's the equivalent? And so we we learned two basic ways to write Braille when I went to school. One was with a Braille slate. I'll try my best to describe what a Braille slate is. If you think of a ruler, something the size of a ruler, and you put it horizontally across the page, so there's a ruler on top, and then underneath is another ruler, like you stick the paper in between. So the slate has two parts to it, a top part and a bottom part, and you slide the paper in between. And on the top part, you will have a line of what we call Braille cells. So each little Braille cell is a little individual cell that you can feel, and there's a line of them that go across the page. And then you take a stylus, which is like a little pointy object, like yeah. an awl, which yeah. is the, the downfall of poor Louis Braille. That's yes. how he lost his vision. Yeah. So it's a, it's a stylus, and you poke holes using the slate as your guide into the paper to make your words. and Again, to make it even more confusing, the way we learn to write is from right to left. Because remember, the paper is is in between these two parts of the slate. So it's going to the underside of your paper. Right. So you're going right to left. You're not writing the words backwards. You're just writing the letters backwards. So you never think of it that way. Hmm. You just think this is how you do it. And then when you flip the paper over, of course, you can read left to right. So that's, and uh, I still love my slate. I still have my slate. Hmm. I love my slate. The other uh, mecha- the other device we used is called a Braille writer, a Perkins Braille writer. They're kind of big, heavy things, but boy, they were much easier than the slate. And if, so if you imagine a, a device in front of you and it has six keys, three, there's a big space bar in the middle, three on the right, three on the left. And remember, we said that Braille was made up of six dots. Yeah. So by combining these keys in different ways, you get Braille. You can roll the paper in and you can type away. And it's much easier on your hands than trying to, you know, use your slate and stylus. I have to say, uh, when we use them in a class, they're darn noisy. <laughs> so, you know, that uh, that that was the two-way, two main devices. Nowadays, and I'll just touch on this, I mean, now we have Braille displays which t- attach to your computer. And uh, so you can use them for reading Braille and you can even write Braille using your iPhone. There's a certain way that you can do it using placing your fingers on the screen and engaging the, you know, the Braille writing uh, setting in your voiceover setting. So I won't go into that. It's a little complicated, but uh, that's more the the newer version. But, you know, there's still many of us that wander around using our slates. Uh, I don't use it. I mean, most of my writing is done on the computer. I don't sit down in my slate very often. But if I want to jot down a phone number or I want to write a label for my spices so I know, you know, which is the garlic and which is the ginger, I'll just grab my slate and, you know, make a label. Yeah. Yeah. So, Yvonne, that sounds, the way you've explained it is, is really, really clear. Thank you so much for that. So let's let's go from Brantford. Uh, you yeah. you now have learned Braille. You're a young student. You're getting interested in your future. At what mm-hmm. point do you decide that you want to study law? And how <laughs> did you find yourself studying law? Where did you you graduated? I gather from Brantford. I uh, no, I did not. I uh, I was uh, pulled out of school by my mother, who was not. Uh, had some concerns about me and we don't need to go into that but uh <laughs> at, so i i at that you know back i'll, I'll date myself here in the 70s yeah. uh suddenly it was becoming more acceptable to integrate blind children into the classroom and i had a you know a very strong mother uh, she learned to be strong over time she didn't start always start out yelling and screaming but she learned to do that and so she really pushed for me to be integrated into 
a our, our neighborhood high school. So I spent the last two years of my high school at City Park in Saskatoon. In Saskatoon, okay. Yeah, um, enjoying, you know, my being with my family and my friends. So, and then uh, from there, of course, one of the things, and I, and I, you know, I willingly admit there's, there's always a little good with, with the, with the bad. One of the things at the, at the school for the blind that I give huge credit to is it was always assumed that we as blind students would go to university regardless of gender. And it was highly, we had some good teachers and they really, really promoted you know, post-secondary education. So I just assumed I'd go to university. That was a natural thing to do. So I did, and I, I got a, a Bachelor of Arts degree, which when you upon finishing it, you say to yourself, what am I going to do with this? Like, what am I equipped to do? And so I, I was, it was hard finding employment. It was in those days, uh, there was no rights protection. And so employers were pretty open about their discriminatory attitudes. And, uh, it took me a long time to find a job, but I found one with a community agency run by a Viet- Vietnam draft dodger from uh, the U.S. who had come to Canada and had a very progressive view of the world and said he'd give me a chance. And I learned to do um, crisis counseling. And a lot of it was done by phone, which was uh, really useful for me. Yeah. And to provide community support to people who needed to know where to go to get the certain kinds of supports that they needed. And, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry this is taking long, but it, no, it, no, it, listen, is, going it's, it's, the, it is going to the answer. Yeah, yeah no, and, no, I appreciate you know, it. So, so I, I learned a lot about social services and community development through this job. And I thought, you know, I need more education. I need, I need, to, to, I need to better skills. And so I went off to the University of Regina to uh, get my social work degree. I was really pretty much convinced throughout most of my studies that I would become a counselor because I enjoyed talking with people, listening to people, engaging with them. So that was pretty much where I was headed. I took all the communication classes. And and then towards the end of my studies, I took a few what we call social policy classes, uh, looking at poverty, looking at um, you know, systems inequality, social social inequality, and wow, did that ever open my eyes? Because then I realized that you can counsel people all you want, but if what they're dealing with is a society that you know treats them differently and discriminates and engages in inequality, all the counseling in the world is not going to help them, yeah. uh, because they're dealing with these systemic social inequalities and that just I threw counseling out the door much to the chagrin of some of my my instructors and said you know this is I I really want to get involved with you know um, social advocacy and just (laughs) at the same time as all this was happening I had to do a paper on it was something about labor rights I don't remember the paper except that I found this amazing document called the Saskatchewan Human Rights Code. I didn't even know such a thing existed. Mm-hmm. And reading it was very excited only to discover that people with disabilities, people like myself who were blind, had no protection. So, you know, armed with my new, you know, I'm going to be the social rights activist hero and this discovery that here, you know, here was a blatant violation um, I got involved and found some other, you know, somebody, I guess, let me know that there were other people with disabilities similar to me who were concerned about this. And, and I joined the forces and, uh, and I began working on, on human rights and pushing for legislative change and really got introduced to the whole idea of, of advocacy. Because before then, I was just this maverick individual, didn't really know what I was doing. And, you know, that somehow... Through my work, we did. We, we were successful in getting the Saskatchewan Human Rights Code amended to include mental and physical disability. And through my work, I, I landed a, a job with the Saskatchewan Human Rights Commission and worked as a human rights officer for five years. And as you pointed out earlier, this was all happening around the time that we were debating the Constitution here in Canada and a Charter of Rights and Freedoms and what that would mean. 
And to make a long story short, suddenly what started lurking in my brain was, I need to know how laws are made. I need more than just to be a screamer. Mm -hmm. I need to figure out how to get be engaged in the development of laws and pushing through for law reform. And, you know, then this idea crept into my head, why don't you go to law school? So, you know, in my early 30s, I went and talked to somebody and at the law school and discovered that I would be, was considered a, a you know, a, a mature student. And so, um, you know, went through the steps. I never really quite believed I'd do it, but I went through the steps and suddenly found myself accepted into law school and foolishly quit my good paying job. <laughs> and off I went to law school. And, and I want to say, you know, from the outset, that I did not go to law school to get a typical law job. So I wasn't looking to be working in a law firm. I really wanted it as a tool to help me do the work that I really enjoyed in the area of advocacy. And, and that was a little challenging because all my buddies around me, they were just like, oh boy, I'm going to go work for this firm and that firm. And this is the best firm to work for. And we should all, if you got an interview, you were really something. And you know, I found myself kind of competing with that idea to see what I could do, but uh, that was never, never uh, my intention. So that's, that's in a kind of long way around how I ended up uh, in law school. And, uh, you know, it's in a way, my some of my instructors at uh, the School of Social Work were really hoping I'd continue on and take a master's in social work and you know, continue on my social work career. But I really believe that law is not, ex you know, you can use all kinds of um, of your skills when you're working with the law. And a social work degree is very handy. Yeah. Yeah. No, Yvonne, let, let me just, did, did you get, uh, clarify this, did you get your um, law degree at the University of Saskatchewan? Yes, sorry. Okay. I yeah, yes, no, no. I so did. yeah, so, I so that's where you, yeah. I went yeah. to the U of S. Yeah, and and so again, would was Braille the, the 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 most significant way, of course, that you would be? I mean, other than when you had verbal conversations and different things, but Braille, you had to present a paper. It was all done by Braille. No, let me tell you about Braille. Okay. Uh, sadly, Braille is 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 it's difficult. It was very difficult in those days. When I went to university in the 70s and 80s to get Braille, you know, to find a place that could produce the materials that you need quickly enough. And uh, so I was not able to get my materials in Braille, even though that would have been my preference. One thing I'll say about Braille is it does take up a lot of room. Braille, even with all of its contractions, still, you know, it, it because it's, you know, bumps on a page, the pages. You know, the book can get pretty thick pretty quickly. Yeah. So, for example, if you have a, I had a pocket pocket dictionary that was seven big volumes. Wow. So, in some ways, Braille, as much as I love it, isn't practical because it's just you know takes up a lot of space. So, most of my university was done in those days by using uh, cassette tape. So, I had to hire readers to read. Uh, legal text. Can you imagine anything more boring? Uh, <laughs> onto cassette tape, and then in turn, I would listen to those tapes. And that is not, let me tell you, an easy way to learn law. Listening to somebody read legal text, it's everything you you have to kind of keep running around the room so you don't fall asleep because it's pretty dry. Right. But it was the only way available to me right. in those days. Days yeah. things are different now, but in those days, it okay. was the only way. Okay. So, so then, you know, just as a sidebar on this thing, Yvonne, so what, just, just what is different today? Just to, let's just explore that sure. for a second and then we'll come back to a couple other thoughts yeah. that I have with yeah. you. Yeah. Today, you know, we have uh, technologies has advanced leaps and bounds and now everybody uses a computer. So there's a, most of the material that people need can be obtained in an electronic format. That's a huge plus for blind people. The next step then is to make sure that electronic material is accessible. That is, it's in a format that will be easily read by your screen reader. So now what you can, can get is, is a screen reader that is, um, you know, you, you install onto your computer and it reads everything that's on the screen to you. And uh, there are some, you know, diff difficulties because you have to make sure 
the screen reader can only recognize certain things and it's not good at recognizing pictorial or imagery. So everything has to be, you know, sort of in a way that looks like words. So as long as, and it's very possible to make electronic uh, materials accessible. And just, uh, just as an aside, anybody who has an iPhone, just go into your settings, go down to accessibility, mm-hmm. go down to vision, wow. yeah. open up voiceover. And the good thing about iPhones is that the screen reader called voiceover is built right into the iPhone. So you don't need to download or install anything different. But that's how people nowadays, most of most blind people access you know, any any great quantity of material is, is through the electronic means. And so had I had that when I went to law school, that would have been so much easier. <laughs> yeah, and now yeah, and, and yeah. as well, and I mentioned this earlier, yeah. you can you can connect up what they what we call braille display devices. And they when it connects to your screen, instead of your, your screen reader reading to you, now this device will show you in braille line by line what's on the screen. So you can read your materials in Braille using these very expensive Braille displays. I, I have yet to uh, own one, but it's on my list. So, yeah, But yeah, yeah, so things have really improved. Thank goodness. Yeah, no. So if Howard happens to listen to this, you know, there could be a special anniversary yeah. coming up. You know, he might <laughs> want to buy one of those for you, right? Um, he hears me talk about it all the time. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Yvonne, so just a couple of things. One is I know that you currently travel with a guide dog. And I know that this yes. is a bit of a, a pivot away from Braille, but but just for somebody who is blind or visually impaired, as you are, wh- mm-hmm. tell me, when did you get your first guide dog? I'm on my seventh guide dog. Okay. I got my first guide dog in 1978. Okay. Up till then, I was, I think, in my own opinion, a very good cane user because that's another way that people mobility for blind people is using using a white cane and I thought it was pretty good and that was adequate but then I I was in Toronto visiting a very good friend of mine who I admired because she had very good mobility skills and here she was with a guide dog and she was getting around so gracefully and so easily and so that really impressed me so you know then I investigated uh, the idea I didn't know a thing about dogs didn't even know if I liked them (laughs) (laughs) but went to Morristown New Jersey it's called the seeing eye it's the first school in North America to train and they they actually are the people who own the trademark seeing eye dog okay and yeah I gave it a a try and uh, took a while it took a while but you know after a couple of weeks I really loved working with a guide dog. Just, yeah. I love the the feel of it and the ease of it and the gracefulness of it. And mm. you know, you get you get a, a lovely furry companion. Yeah, no, for sure. Hey, so <laughs> just why did it take a while? Did it, what, what what were some of the challenges? It's quite daunting. First of all, as I said, I. I really, I didn't even know how to play with a dog. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't have a pet in my, my, as a child. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they brought the dogs to us and then you're supposed to play with them and get to know them for three hours. I thought this was the longest three hours of my life. What do you, and my dog wasn't very happy with me. She just cried. She wanted to be with the trainer. Like she was not interested in me. But I think the other, the real big thing is giving over your trust to a dog. Right. Yeah. Really, a dog is going to guide you safely down the sidewalk, across a busy street, past obstacles, up and down stairs. Can this really be true? So, you know, I was very, because I was a very independent person, very sure of myself, and I just could not imagine handing over my, you know, my trust to a dog. Mm-hmm. So that, that, you know, and really, it 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 didn't take that long, I suppose, because once you got into it and you realize, oh my God, this can work, right? You you give over, but it 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 did take me a while, and even the first year, you know, it's a learning curve for both of you. So it, it takes time, and just learning how to care for a dog. A, a sure. dog needs lots of care. Yes, you can't yep. just put it in the corner and say, no. "I'll like the white cane," and say, "I'll take care yeah. what I need." Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And 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 you mentioned just to, we just touch on you know the the notion of course that uh, you have a guide dog and you have encountered discrimination because mm-hmm. of 
your dog, your guide dog. What, share, share what, what does that look like for somebody who is watching this happen or happens to somebody, please, Yvonne? Well, I'll kind of give you a before and after scenario, yeah. scenario or um, overview. Uh, when I first took my first guide dog back home to Saskatoon in the late 70s, there really hadn't been many people with guide dogs in Saskatoon. I think I may have been the first, though I'm not yep. sure of that. Yep. It certainly felt like the first. So every place I went, it was the same debate. No dogs allowed. And then luckily, back to the Human Rights Code, it had just been amended to protect blind persons who use guide dogs. So I, I did have law on my side. But every place I went, it was a debate about, you know, my rights versus their decision that they didn't want guide dogs in their premises. So, I mean, for the most part, after, you know, discussion, I would be let in. Sometimes I was very, in a very hostile way, kicked out. Oh. oh, wow. I did have to go to human rights tribunals a couple of times. One went to the Court of Appeal in Saskatchewan. But, you know, I couldn't be honest and truthful with myself and just back down. You, you know, that's just who I am. I'm not saying everybody has to be that way, but but it's a terrible feeling. I mean, the one scenario I'll tell you about, because I'm kind of giving you the academic version, but it has a, an emotional toll as well to, to, you know, get your, your stomach goes into a knot. Wherever you go, you, you think, oh, my God, it's going to be an ordeal. We took my mom and dad out for Chinese food. My dad loved this Chinese place. He loved it. He wanted me to go with, with them to it. So I went. And there was a terrible ruckus at the front door. They did not want me in there. And in fact, you know, they weren't, there was nothing I could do. They weren't going to let me in, no matter. And I was with my parents and there's only so much fuss or ruckus that you want to make in front of your parents that they started getting very uncomfortable. And it hurt me deeply, deeply that my parents had to witness this, my my mm -hmm. parents were shaken that their daughter would be treated this way, especially at a place that they'd gone to and really felt like a sort of a neighborhood friend. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so even though I, I feel quite strong and I feel like I can defend myself, whenever uh, I say, whenever somebody, you know, treats you that way and says, we don't want you in our establishment, it tears away a bit of your soul and it doesn't come back. And even if you go to a human rights tribunal and they give you a hundred bucks because you for hurt feelings, that's mm -hmm. nothing. I mean, right. it, your yeah. feelings have been hurt. Yeah. They're damaged, you know? Yeah. So now I want to say that here in Winnipeg at the moment, I have occasionally run into rejection. Very seldom have I left. So for the most part, I, I'm welcomed and there's nothing said. Occasionally, when there is a bit of a discussion, I win because I say to them, let's call your lawyer. Let's ask your lawyer if you it is okay for you to discriminate against me. And if your lawyer, you know, says that you're within the law to discriminate against me, fine. Well, we'll see. But I said, I think your lawyer is going to give you a different opinion. Right. As soon as I invite them to call the lawyer, they sort of give up and let yeah. me in. Yeah. They might not like me being yeah. there, but yeah, you know, yeah, and Yvonne, the part that always comes back when you tell that story that happens to somebody like you who has been involved in securing the recognition of, of disability rights in, in the Canadian Charter for Rights and Freedoms. And you know, there's something there's something that doesn't quite square there where yeah. Canada you know, has granted constitutional protection to the rights of persons with physical and mental disabilities, and you're denied access to in a restaurant. Yes, and it still goes on. I mean, the big issue now is is uh, transportation and air carriers. And I, you know, I want to be careful here. They know they have to carry guide dogs, but you know, now they're throwing up uh, barriers like, well, we're not going to carry you unless you register two days in advance. Okay, that's reasonable. But let's say something happens and I need to get to my family because somebody's very ill. Right. And I have to jump on that plane within two hours. Well, I have to go and I argue and who knows if they'll let me on the plane. Yeah. So, you know, it there's still barriers and, and they 
they seem to, they, we get, you know, we move two steps forward and we move a step back. There's, you know, the, the barriers sort of pop up in different shapes and versions, mm-hmm. but, but they're still there, you know, but I, you know, eventually, gradually we do, we do make success, but we can all, we must always stay vigilant because we can never assume that our, our success is going to hold, that we, we still have to keep vigilant. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, you know, I'm going to come back to Braille at some point even yes, in yes, this yes, conversation, but, but here's the part that I, I'm just fascinated by, that you were involved in the implementation of a regulated midwifery in Manitoba. Yes. What, what, yes. what brought you to getting involved with midwifery? <laughs> that is such a good question. I asked myself, I did a lot of speaking in the early 80s, I guess, about new reproductive technologies. And this is another sort of complicated issue. So in the 80s, um, I joined, you know, some of the discussions on women's reproductive issues. And one of the things that's been happening is, you know, prenatal diagnosis and how you deal with the results of those prenatal diagnosis. And, you know, sometimes there are conditions that are identified, um, sometimes disabilities. And the concern is, you know, how women's choice was being looked at in terms of the kinds of diagnosis and what medical professions would say to women about the fetuses that they were carrying. So while I, you know, I I just wanted to raise the awareness with women that, you know, prenatal diagnosis is a good thing, but it can also be discriminatory. So I did a lot of this talking and I guess some people, some of the women heard me and out of the clear blue one day in the 90s, I got a call from Manitoba Health from a person I knew there, a woman I knew saying, would I be interested in joining the Midwifery Implementation Council? And would I head up the legislation committee to develop midwifery? And I'm going, whoa, what do I know about midwifery? What do I know about, you know, birth or whatever? So, but uh, the more I thought about it, it really is to some degree a rights issue. Women, again, a part of choice about how how women give birth and done in a safe and and well-evidence-based researched way. So, you know, I, I thought about it and then eventually accepted to be on this committee. And, you know, let me tell you, Stuart, it's it's a very, very fascinating area. And once you're in, you're sort of hooked for life. I mean, I just became such a big, I don't know, groupie or fan <laughs> of, of midwifery. And I yeah. thoroughly, it's a highlight of my career and, yeah. uh, you know, still keep in touch, you know, with how things are, are going. So yeah, and, and just, in, you know, keep the, the Braille topic going, bubbling here. I had the uh, the Midwifery Act brailed. Oh. And um, wow. we had to, as you know, uh, when legislation is uh, being proposed, it goes through committee, a committee review where yeah. the public can come and make their submissions. And so the Midwifery Implementation Council was there and I was there with my braille legislation. In case any questions came up, I could help answer the minister who was Darren Krasnick at the time, Right. if uh, if something came up or whatever. So there I was with my my lovely Braille book. And uh, at the end of the hearings, I don't know who did this, but somebody grabbed my book and took it off to uh, Darren Krasnick and said, here, sign, sign this as the Minister of Health. Sign this Braille copy of the Midwifery Act. So, uh, you know, because the legislation, you know, as, it, as, as you know, went through. So yes. I, I have this. This little souvenir of my time, wow. yeah. uh, you know, with my braille legislations. So. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, that's a no. Thank you for sharing that, Yvonne. Yvonne, is there anything that you look at and say that, you know, from a blind person's perspective, that we, how can we improve from a human rights perspective, the use of braille or? Or would you sort of say, look, that's kind of past now. It's really more what I, what you explained earlier about technology. And I'm really looking for this to, from an inclusive, you know, as we try to live, give every human mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. the same experience. Mm-hmm. How do you sort of see that? Well, as, where are we at? Well, uh, it, let me say that, that Braille has enjoyed a resurgence. Many of us, you know, really encourage braille and and i so what i i say to to anybody who's putting out public information think about how to be as inclusive as possible and obviously you're going to start because you will 
no doubt your material will be electronic. That's just the way we go these days. Mm-hmm. So, so make sure your electronic material is, is compatible with screen readers. The other thing, though, like let's say you're having an event. What a lovely idea if you had conference materials or agendas or menus in Braille. I realize that putting a lot of uh, you know, big chunks of material in Braille might be challenging. But how about some of those simple things? Or how about putting numbers on your hotel door right. that are in Braille? Yeah. Or, and in many cases, elevators, for example, now do have Braille. I'm so happy when I see that. Yeah. You know, in Japan, we visited Japan a few years ago, and Braille is universal. It's, it's not a universal code. It's different in every language, but it's used in all countries. When I was in Japan, they have Braille on everything. Your point of sales device when you're paying, all in Braille. Uh, my friend had a washer, all the settings you could feel in Braille. You know, you went to visit a beautiful garden with flowers, all the names were in Braille. Oh. Sadly, sadly, mm-hmm. sadly, mm-hmm. I do not read Japanese Braille, so it was lost on me. Right. But it was so thrilling. And I think if we can do simple things like that, like just add Braille. Mm-hmm. And for example, the museum, the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, I believe a lot of, they, they do have, you know, titles, names of, you know, things do, that you can read in yeah, Braille. Yeah. They have a Braille map and so on. Yeah. I think if you just do those things and you know some people will say well you know not a lot of blind people use braille and and i want to be clear that is probably true we all learned as children now because of advancement in medicine we're not seeing as many blind children anymore but where blindness is is you know where there's you know we're seeing more blindness taking place is in older adults because of illness or disease or perhaps aging and so it's not as easy for older people to learn braille but we are pushing that because even the simplest of things like for example if you're going on a tour and you find a you're in a flower garden and you wonder what's this flower and you could just read the name just to learn to read a little braille would mm-hmm. be it's helpful or yeah. to write down a phone number that you can keep in your purse or, you know, you don't have to flick on your phone or what. So, you know, I, I, I think Braille is still very current. We need to keep pushing it. And that's what we've been doing. There was a time when everybody said, ah, technology's here. We don't need Braille. But if I can, can I just go off in a little tangent totally. about Braille? Absolutely. And that is why Braille? What's the difference? Why not just read things on computer? But, Think about yourself when you when you listen to something, and you're listening to the you know radio or whatever, and then you read a newspaper. It engages different parts of your brain, and it's a totally different experience. And that's the same for Braille users. If we get to read something, and I personally find I, I call myself a visual learner, if I can feel that or see that word on the page, it it's way more meaningful. I'm going to retain that information a lot more easily than if I just listen to my screen reader read it on the computer voice or even if it's a human voice reading a book to me or whatever. Right. It's just we need to keep that part of our brain engaged. And it's a it's an you know we all love to pick up a book at Christmas. We're all going to get books for Christmas and yep. read it. It's an enjoyable experience. When I get a Braille book, I just, you know, do a happy dance. I'm really pleased <laughs> about that. Yeah. That's fantastic. Would you say uh, Yvonne, is there, you know, somebody's listening and said, you know, I'd really like to learn more about Braille or, a, you know, is there a, like a, a documentary or a book or something that you may be aware of to say, you know what, I, I this is just a, w- something that everybody should, should, uh, you know, watch or read or be a part of to, to really understand the importance of, of Braille in society. Well, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, you can find uh, all kinds of material, I suppose, on the on the the internet. The I guess the the I think there's it's something called the International Braille Authority. Yeah, it's either the Braille uh, Authority or the International Braille Authority. But but look that up because they're really instrumental in in promoting Braille and providing educational. I, I myself haven't looked it up lately. I suppose I should. But I, I think you know there you would you would find in all of the arguments around uh, around the use of Braille and why why Braille is important yeah. and you know a little 
a little issue, but it's kind of important, but I, I'll, I'll just raise it. It's one of the little debates that some of the some of us in the blind community have been having is, is, is should Braille be capitalized? Because mm. a lot of times people do not capitalize it. But we argue, some of us, that Braille should be capitalized because it is named after Louis Braille. It is right. a name. It's named after somebody. It's not just like, you know, print or writing or so. it, it's actually like Morris code where we capitalize the M as I understand. So we, we, we're having this little debate about, you know, we should be capitalizing Braille and, and many of us do that. And the reason I raise that, because that again, underscores the importance of Braille, that it's, it's actually, you know, it is a form of mm-hmm. communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and you mentioned the fact you were in Japan and uh, you couldn't, I mean, there was Braille on, on you know, where the flowers were for a description mm-hmm. of the flowers. But as you say, you you can't read Braille in Japanese. Is it, is it, a, this is a big assumption, Yvonne, but is it the assumption that whatever country you go in that, so for example, you go to France, if there is mm-hmm. Braille there, it's just, it is going to be in French, period, full yes. stop. Yeah, totally, right. totally, totally different. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. Uh, totally different. But isn't it amazing that they take this oh. this little invention by Louis yeah. Braille, who of course invented it. He's he's from France, so it's yeah. in French. But you can take this this six dot communication and incorporate it into most languages around the world. Like, yeah. it's pretty amazing. It's stunning, and it's stunning. Yeah. I mean, it, it it's it's a miracle for sure. Um, yeah. Yvonne Peters, you know, this has been a great conversation uh, and we're going to do it again because there's so many other areas that you were involved in. I, you know, my whole purpose of creating this podcast to talk about humans or talk with humans about rights. You have a great history of being so active and so involved. And so there's going to be another opportunity for us to <laughs> uh, to have a conversation, which I, I really relish and look forward to. But for today, as we really look back and, and I guess, celebrate what is, you know, the United Nations has determined that January 4th should be mm-hmm. World Braille Day. Yvonne Peters, thanks for taking some time and, and, and thank you so much for this conversation. I really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Stuart. I, I really enjoyed myself and uh, happy World Braille Day. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, great way to end it. Thanks, Yvonne. <laughs> okay, and, bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Humans on Rights. A transcript of this episode is available by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by Buffy Davey. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.